0: Welcome to Dear 20-something. I'm Erica, the host of this podcast, and I'm so excited to have you here. A bit about me, I'm a 20-something social entrepreneur and investor who is navigating the ups and downs of being in my 20s. The Dear 20-something podcast started because we wanted to create a space for ambitious and curious 20-somethings to connect with the successful changemakers they most look up to. While the 20s can be a time full of questions and doubts, we're here to humanize the whole thing. You'll hear from successful trailblazers who will share the highs and lows of their 20s and you'll also get words of wisdom from some experts who will speak on a certain topic relevant for 20-somethings. And then sometimes it'll just be me on the mic hosting an episode where I share a recent reflection or story from my own life as I too am navigating this wild decade. We're so happy to have you here. Let's get started. Today on the solo episode, I will be sharing very high level what the world of social entrepreneurship is about. This episode is called Social Entrepreneurship 101. I was very fortunate to receive my master's degree in social entrepreneurship at USC, which is one of the few schools with a program to offer it. I also gave a TEDx talk titled How Social Entrepreneurship Will Change the World, and I helped to build a few social enterprises as well. So if you couldn't tell, it is an obsession of mine. For better, for worse. And I do get asked about this frequently. What is social entrepreneurship? So I wanted to give insight into how I think about social entrepreneurship and why I think it will change the world. So like, you know, I do every episode. I break it into a few different sections. So there's going to be four sections today. The first section is going to be the definition of social entrepreneurship. Second section is going to be examples that you might know just to give you some context. Third is going to be why it's so impactful. And lastly, I'll leave you with just some resources that might be helpful if you want to dive into it more. All right. So, the first section is the definition of social entrepreneurship. What actually is it? This will be our lengthiest section. Some of the things I wanted to start with right off the bat is the misconceptions around social entrepreneurship. It is not a social media entrepreneur, which some people seem to think with the word social in front. It has nothing to do with entrepreneurs posting on social media. That word social is confusing. It means more about social impact than it does social media. Another misconception is that, as a joke, a social entrepreneur, an outgoing entrepreneur, it does not mean that you are a social person. Again, it means more about, you care about social impact as an entrepreneur. Someone told me this line that I thought was helpful when looking at professions. The noun always comes first when looking at the title of someone. So for example, a social entrepreneur, the entrepreneur part comes first. So they are an entrepreneur who cares about social impact, but their number one thing is that they are an entrepreneur, a heart doctor, as an example. They're a doctor that happens to treat the heart. So I think when thinking about careers, I always like to look at the main noun and then view the adjective before or the word before as sort of just like the subcategory of it. So I identify as someone not who is so who cares about social impact and chooses the path of entrepreneurship. I'm someone who has chosen the path of entrepreneurship and does it in a way that is all about social impact. So I hope that clarifies. All right, so now that we've tackled some misconceptions, I'm going to dive into just some of the definitions that I really liked. I pulled two from the internet, so these are the two that I really like. Social entrepreneurship is an approach by individuals or groups in which they develop, fund, and implement solutions to social, cultural, or environmental issues. I thought that was a really nice way to describe social entrepreneurship, especially this social, cultural, or environmental part, because as you can see, social is just one part of it. A lot of social enterprises will tackle environmental issues as well. And then the second definition I like is, social entrepreneurship is the study of practical, innovative, and sustainable approaches to benefit society in general, with an emphasis on those who are marginalized. I really like that definition. I think practical, innovative, and sustainable are really three great adjectives. I think sustainability is like the key one there, especially when we talk about social impact. A lot of the time, sustainability is left out of the conversation. But when we talk about for-profit businesses, everyone talks about sustainability and scalability. But I think when it comes to social impact, sometimes we don't always talk about that. And so I really like that. Obviously, innovative is a very important part. Typically, it is pushing the boundaries, which we'll talk about later when it comes to social entrepreneurship, because it's not very common and practical. It obviously has to work, right? I think a lot of the times with nonprofits and for profits, ideas are great, but if they're not practical and they do not actually work, it does not matter. So those were the two definitions I really liked. I then came up with three on my own. And these, I feel like kind of touch on different points of social entrepreneurship. But whenever people ask me in my day-to-day life, I typically give one of these three definitions. So the first is social entrepreneurship is an approach that views profit and purpose as not mutually exclusive targets. I think that sums it up pretty simply, which I think is important to keep it simple, that profit and purpose do not have to be viewed as completely separate entities, especially when it comes to the world of business. I think a lot of the times we even separate out departments in business. We have a corporate social responsibility department or a sometimes known as CSR Or a diversity, equity, inclusion department, also known as DEI. We separate out, we have a philanthropy department, we separate out our purpose initiatives. So I think for me, like that's something that I don't think needs to be separated. And it's really a bummer that a lot of businesses have actually separated those out. Second definition of social entrepreneurship is social entrepreneurship is the belief that the best forms of innovation and change exist in the gray between strictly for profit businesses, think like LLCs and strictly not for profit 501c3 organizations i like this definition that i came up with too i like to say that a lot of the real change happens in the gray you're taking the best of both sides you're taking the best of the for profit side and you're taking the best of the non profit side and i don't think that any organization does well strictly staying in their lane strictly being a 501c3 and just doing as you're told and strictly being an llc and just doing as you're told i think that The really innovative, successful companies function in the gray in between the two. And then this is the third definition that I will sometimes give to people. And this one, I actually did not come up with myself. I read it online while I was doing research, but it's very similar to what I say. Social entrepreneurship takes the social mission of a nonprofit with the scalability and innovation of a for-profit startup. I hinted at that a little bit earlier, but I think that perfectly exemplifies, again, just what the purpose of social entrepreneurship really, really is. And I think that it is very important to take the best of both worlds. All right. So those are the definitions. I hope with a cumulative five definitions, some mine, some official, you get a good sense of what social entrepreneurship is. Now, the legal structure. So this is part of this gray I was talking about. I think it's important to talk about what a social enterprise can be. So the legal structure so a social enterprise can be a few different things it can be a nonprofit and it can be a for-profit company so i'll give a couple examples typically a social enterprise is a nonprofit but it has a revenue generating model and that basically just means it generates revenue that's all it is it's exactly what it sounds sometimes on a monthly recurring basis sometimes on an annual recurring basis but typically nonprofits will launch whether it's programs or merch or something that gives them revenue coming in. Almost like a, think of it as like a mini business arm in the nonprofit. And one of the examples that I really like to give of a a nonprofit that does this very well is Charity Water. And some of you may be familiar with Scott Harrison. He started Charity Water and he's amazing. He's got a lot of talks online. If you want to read them, he also co-wrote a great book about his experience starting Charity Water And Charity Water is really interesting because they have kind of revolutionized the giving model. So they thought when they interviewed a lot of people, they found that the random person on the street wouldn't give to a nonprofit because they didn't always know what percentage of their dollar was actually going to the programming and actually going to the cause. So like, let's say you give a dollar to the National Breast Cancer Association as an example. A lot of people felt like they didn't have clarity on like, is $0.60 of that going to programming? Is $0.20? Is $0.80? And that people were therefore less likely. This was their hypothesis, that people were less likely to give if they didn't know exactly where their money was going. And so basically what they ended up launching, which has been hugely successful, is this model where 100% of the public's donations goes directly to programming. So it's basically like if you give $1 to Charity Water as an everyday citizen, That full dollar will go towards building wells where there is not access to clean water. That's their mission. And the way that they're able to pay for all their operating costs, which think of it as like the office, the salaries, all of the things that go on behind the scenes, their website hosting, I mean, really everything, they pay for it with corporate partners that give them money. And so they're able to basically preserve this like 100% of public donations go to the programming and therefore really increase their donations. So they have these businesses giving them money on a recurring model. And then they also have like the public that is more confident in giving them money. And they've also set up a really cool recurring model, monthly subscription model for the public. So I would say they're a really great example of a nonprofit that's really changed how you think about giving. And it doesn't have to be the structure that's always been in existence. So I I look to Charity Water as a great example. They also throw a great gala every year. It's pretty rare for a nonprofit to throw such a Celebrity studded gala. I personally think it's brilliant, which shows that they're investing in marketing, they're investing in event support and acting like a business, you know, they're really investing in their brand so that they can grow and scale. So anyway, that is a type of nonprofit that can be a social enterprise. It can also be a for-profit company with a give back component or impact-focused angle at the core of their business model. So I think the most common examples of social enterprises are typically for-profit companies that have a give-back model built into what they do. I think the really important distinction here I just want to make is, and I'll get into it a little bit more later, but to know if it's a social enterprise or not, the question I ask myself is, would this company exist without the impact piece? And if they could still exist without it, then it's probably just a philanthropic initiative and they're just a regular company. But if the company actually wouldn't exist in its current state, then it is a social enterprise if you had removed that, that give back piece. And I'll give some examples later, but I think that's just like high level, a good way to think about it when you're analyzing for-profit companies. One other note I did want to make on the legal structure piece, some people may disagree with me, but my opinion on B Corps is I appreciate the sentiment to want to show that you care about impact. I do think it it is a little bit more of a marketing play than it is like a genuine stamp. If a company registers as a B Corp, I found there's a lot of companies that are B Corps, but don't necessarily have the most ethical or impact focused practices. And so I would say it's always a good sign to see that a company cares and will want to register as a B Corp, but I actually don't use that as my metric of success. Okay. So I did want to just share like three core principles of social entrepreneurship, especially if you're thinking about starting a social enterprise I think the main one is human-centered design thinking. When I explain it, hopefully it makes sense, but the process of human-centered design thinking is basically not just saying, oh, this population needs this solution. I'm going to go build this solution and give it to them. It's actually asking that population what they need and focusing on making it human-centered, focusing on the humans that will actually be serving and designing the solution around them. I think this is especially important with social enterprises because social impact and systems change is extremely complicated. A lot of the issues that we're facing today are, especially social issues are are not solved by throwing money at them and they're not solved by one business doing one thing or one government policy changing. A lot of the times it's a lot of systems working together and it's a lot more nuanced and complicated. And so I think the really the only way to approach it is by ideating over time and interviewing humans. That's another core part of human-centered design is letting the idea ideate over time and not having it set at the very beginning. So you might think that to solve homelessness, we just need more homes to be built. You might think that that's the only solution. Well, it's not that simple, of course, but if that were the solution you came up with, the best practice would be to go talk to humans, see what they say their needs are that are experiencing homelessness. Maybe then you set up a set of homes if you figure out that's the solution and that still doesn't fix it. Okay, what's next? It's this constant process of like ideating and talking to people that are experiencing the issue. And that's really at the core of what social entrepreneurship is about. An organization you might be familiar with is called IDEO. They are amazing and they produce a lot of resources and courses and books, but basically they're just like a design thinking hub that has really promoted a lot of this push for human-centered design thinking. I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head. There's like a really famous book that I read written by the guy who created IDEO. That's a great resource if anyone's interested in learning more and just understanding this mindset. Cause I think it's not just applicable to social entrepreneurship, but it's a really great way to think about solving problems in general for any entrepreneur. One thing I will say too, is I do walk through a very clear process of how I view human centered design thinking in the real world in the TEDx talk that I gave. So I'll mention that more at the end, but if you are curious about like very clear step-by-step and with examples You can listen to it there. So that's the first core principle is human-centered design. A second core principle of social entrepreneurship is recurring revenue. I'm sure that you could guess when I talked about nonprofits, but they especially struggle with this. And I think that it's something that isn't talked about enough. Recurring revenue gives you flexibility to innovate, to invest in new ideas, and to grow. And when you don't have recurring revenue coming in, it's really, really hard because you're in this like scarcity mindset where every month you're waiting for government funding or you're waiting for a grant check and you're always having to start from scratch. And that's why they always say with businesses too, they praise businesses with high recurring revenue. Sometimes they call it monthly recurring revenue, MRR, or annual recurring revenue, ARR. But if you look at what businesses are praised in society, it's the ones that can get and scale a high ARR or MRR very quickly. Because you know that the health of the business hopefully is intact and that it won't go under because they have this guaranteed revenue month to month or year over year. And on this recurring revenue note, I did just want to share a quick example from my own life. I was getting my master's and I had noticed that this was a real problem, that this was like a core principle of social entrepreneurship, recurring revenue, but nonprofits weren't doing it and they didn't even really understand it because a lot of the times nonprofit leaders are so passionate about a certain cause. And so they start a nonprofit, but they don't always have the business background to launch and scale their nonprofit. And so I thought one of the easiest ways to be able to generate recurring revenue for all nonprofits was through merch, through hats, through shirts, through backpacks, whatever it may be. And the idea was pretty much any nonprofit supporter would love to buy some apparel. And if a nonprofit could cash, like uh, let's say $500 or $5,000 check every month from merch sales. They would start to understand the value and importance of having recurring revenue and almost like get their foot in the door to see how much nicer it is to have that check coming in the mail all the time, because if you set up one initiative and it keeps running. And so I ended up starting a social enterprise where I built online stores for nonprofits, connected it to a warehouse so that they could get apparel whenever they wanted. And that was really the mission was to like get nonprofits to understand about recurring revenue get their foot in the door, get them a little bit of sales and have them start to kind of roll that out to other parts of their nonprofit. So if anyone wants to talk and geek out more with me about that, let me know. I think recurring revenue is the secret to a lot of things, not just social enterprises. It's very important for all businesses. Okay, the next core principle, which I had kind of mentioned already too, but it's just that purpose is at its core and not an add-on. And this is what I had mentioned about how to determine if a for-profit company is a social enterprise or not while giving away a percentage of your donations every year is so great and so charitable and so philanthropic, that would not qualify you as a social enterprise. That would most likely qualify you as a smart business wanting a lower tax write-off. Like, It's not at the core of what you do. And while it's appreciated and it's nice, it's not a social enterprise. The give-back and the impact-driven approach has to be baked into the business model and, again, will not be able to exist without it. All right. So then jumping to this next section, as we go through the the definition of social entrepreneurship, I listed out just some key questions that you can ask if you're starting a social enterprise, if you're looking at other social enterprises and seeing what they're doing. I put together a few questions that I at least like to ask when determining if an enterprise is a social enterprise and how successful they are. So the first question that I love is, who are you hiring? And I don't mean this in the sense of diversity, equity, and inclusion. While that's very, very important from like a company culture standpoint, I'm actually talking about who is participating in your platform. So not who is employed by your company, but who is participating in your platform. And there's two companies that I wanted to just highlight. The first one is Chef. So that's actually a company that we recently invested in at the venture capital firm I'm at. So I want to give that disclaimer. That's why I know a little bit about it. But basically what they do is think of it like they're the Postmates. So you can order from restaurants right to your home. But instead of being a Postmates for restaurants, they're like a Postmates for home cooks. So we recently passed some laws specifically in California where I think it was maybe two years ago where basically you could cook food in your home instead of a commercial kitchen and you could sell it for money. And that was really game changing because you've got a lot of people that, are able to share their culture and share their recipes with the world. And so it's really awesome because I believe there are like average age of use on the platform, like their average chef age is 45 plus. And you've got people from all different cultures. A lot of the times it's people that have kind of already retired, but want to make some extra cash. It's the grandmother that sends Swedish meatballs home with her grandson, but like wants to make some extra money on the side as just one target customer. So they really do a cool job of empowering a different demographic to make money. And not many businesses speak to that exact audience. And so I think that's, in a lot of ways, a social enterprise, because you're employing a population that maybe otherwise can't find work as easily, or isn't in a position to monetize in other ways. So the chef example, I really like. Another really obvious example is the giving keys. So I I'm a huge fan of the Giving Keys. One of my friends was the president of the Giving Keys for a little bit. Shout out Britt, if you're listening. She's a rock star. And basically what they did was they were like a jewelry company. They sold really beautiful metal jewelry and they employed individuals who were unhoused to build the products. And so it was a combination of obviously giving them like income because they were working to make the jewelry. But then they also did a lot of partnerships with cool organizations to help them get housing, stay employed all the important things. And so they're an amazing social enterprise. And so I think for both chef and the giving keys, the, who they're hiring makes them a social enterprise. Another key question to ask is what is your business model? So I think the really obvious one is the Tom's one for one business model. It's the one everyone's familiar with. There's a million and one examples now, but I think certain business models really lend themselves to social enterprises and certain don't. If you're obviously as a core of your business model, you're giving back you know, one product for one purchase, no matter what, for every product purchase you're giving, you're donating 33% to X charity, which is what they do now. That's obviously a social enterprise because they are baking, giving into absolutely every purchase. Another business model that's really interesting that hasn't taken off quite as much, but I'm actually very hopeful that it will. There is a company called Every Table. It was started by someone named Sam Polk. And basically what they do is they're trying to democratize access to quality food. So Many of you may know about food deserts. It's a real issue. A lot of the times, high quality, not processed foods are only available in wealthier areas. And so in poor lower income communities, they don't even actually have access a lot of the time to healthier foods. Think like obviously salads and greenery and fiber and all the good things. And so the every table model is basically that they are, they're basically creating like socialized restaurants, if you will, but They're putting, let's say they have three Every Table restaurants in a wealthy area. Let's say they have one in Beverly Hills, one in Westwood, and one in West Hollywood, as an example. They will charge for salads, like let's say it's $13 per salad in each of those three locations. And then what they'll do is they'll put one restaurant in, let's say, Compton, more of a lower income area, and they'll charge $5 for a salad. And so the idea is they're able to scale their business Well, keeping in mind what like the average order value is across all their locations. And so I'm not exactly sure what their ratio is. I don't know if it's three to one, you know, three restaurants in wealthier areas to one restaurant in a more lower income area. But I know that they do that. They scale accordingly and they have, let's say their target is, you know, $11 per salad is what they need. Then they can just price accordingly. I think that's a really, really cool model. I think it's super different and excited to see if anyone else starts to tackle that too. One company that, when I say what is your business model, one company to look at, again, that is not a social enterprise would be Salesforce or Patagonia. Some of these companies that have the 1% of profits for good, from my understanding, they are not a social enterprise because their core offering is not connected to that give back component. It's just something nice that they do at the end of the year. Okay, and then the last key question I ask, this one is a little bit unique. You might not hear elsewhere, but I found that it really, really helps me. At scale, does your business create a better or worse problem? And problem, I mean social issue. Does it make that issue better or does it make it worse? And you would be very surprised because you would think that anytime someone's creating a social enterprise, it would be making the problem better, right? It would be it would be resolving the problem, it would be making it disappear. But a lot of the times the initial intention is good and pure, but at scale, it actually creates other problems or makes it worse. So I just wanted to give a couple examples. One example where it actually at scale creates a flywheel of good and actually gets better. Kiva is an amazing organization. They're a social enterprise and they give microloans to individuals in developing nations. And basically what that means is if you live in a in a country where you don't have easy access to financing, they will connect you with it's almost like a matchmaking service where they'll connect you with someone in a place where they do have access to a bank and they do have liquidity and they will basically give you a loan, a micro loan. So it can even be $20. And that $20 can go a very long way in some developing nations. And so let's say I go on their platform and I give $20 to a woman in a developing country. She will then go and maybe start her business. She will then maybe go and buy medication or whatever it might be, and then she will pay me back. I think most of the time they do go start their own business, that's usually what it's for. And then she pays me back. And I think they have like a 95% loan repay rate or something crazy. And so the idea is you're just temporarily loaning money to someone where it can go really far away. And then it comes back to you and then it creates this flywheel of change. So then that business can keep serving people. Then that person in their community, that woman can then give to more people. And so at scale, if this were to happen across the whole world, it's actually democratizing access to financing. And like, it's an amazing, amazing organization. So I would say to answer the at scale question, Kiva like checks off that box for me. Another example is Tom's. Now, Tom's is a bit tricky. I have so much respect for that team. I'm friends with most of that team. They're amazing. I will say one of the things that was a little bit tricky that they had to figure out with time was if you are providing shoes for people in developing nations and in lower income communities, one of the unintended consequences is that you're putting shoemakers in these little towns out of business. And so that's something that at scale is something to consider and maybe something you wouldn't even know ahead of time, but maybe people's feet change and it makes it harder for them to run around if they're wearing shoes all the time. And so it makes it weaker. I mean, like at scale, there may be issues that arise that you otherwise wouldn't know. And everyone has really good intentions, but I think it's it's something to just think about like at scale, are there other effects that's going to happen because you're launching something? Then another example that I think is actually really interesting and it stuck with me is a friend of mine was starting a, I think it was called, I just want to call it like a fair porn company or a good for you porn company. I'm not sure what the exact language was, but basically it was a platform that only allowed for like safe consensual sex and porn. And so she felt very passionate about it and she was building this platform and connecting with a lot of people in the industry. But one thing that she had realized was like, at scale, if this achieves the like metrics she hope it does, which is like, you know, lots of recurring revenue and a high valuation, it actually means so many more people are getting in the porn industry than they otherwise were currently. And so she had to kind of think about like, does, even though it's like the people who are doing drugs, they provide clean needles because they don't want them to get sick and get infected. It's kind of the same thing. It's like, if you know what's happening anyway, do you create a platform that makes it safer and better? Maybe yes. But what's that cap? Because if it is much more safe and much more lucrative, then maybe a lot more people will be interested and a lot more people will get into it. And is that really the change that you want to see? Maybe it's less so that. So I thought that was just like a really interesting example that like, even though that you're you're launching these initiatives that are making things safer and better and cleaner at scale, if this program really does take off, is that actually solving the problem? So, yeah, that's my long walkthrough of social entrepreneurship and the, and the definitions and different examples. I did just want to give a few more examples of social enterprises so it's easy for people to understand what they are and can identify them in the real world. So Kiva, I already mentioned, the Groming Bank is another one that is really amazing and I think was the impetus for Kiva. They're technically a nonprofit social enterprise, but they do amazing work. So I would check them out. Another few social enterprises I wanted to mention that have this one-for-one model, Tom's is one, Bombas, Figs, Warby Parker, they all fall into that category of one-for-one. So they are very cool social enterprises to look into if you're curious about that model. Another example is a little bit more meta, but there are social enterprises that invest in social enterprises. And so that's a really cool model as well. Some of the businesses that do that are Acumen, Endeavor, and Ashoka. I believe Acumen, Endeavor, and Ashoka are all nonprofit social enterprises, but I know that they really blur the lines there because when they're making investments, they want to get a return. So that's always fun to see a business where it's a little, it's a little unclear what their structure is because they, they do a little bit of both. And I did just want to list out a few companies that are not social enterprises, just to again help kind of bucket what that type is. Airbnb. While an awesome company and they do their open homes campaign during disasters, which is great for charity, they are not a social enterprise. They just have an awesome philanthropic arm where they provide free housing when the time is right. Soul Cycle charity rides that you may do where they donate money, that would not make Soul Cycle a social enterprise. I mentioned Salesforce and Patagonia earlier. Giving 1% to the to the planet or 1% of your profits at the end of the year does not make you a social enterprise. Another example, Gravity Payments. So many people may know of Dan Price. He is the founder of Gravity Payments, a bit of a controversial guy. He basically said that he is going to be hiring people at a minimum of $70,000 a year for fair wage in, in company culture and all that stuff. While I think that's amazing and great for him, that does not make Gravity Payments a social enterprise. Companies that encourage volunteering. So if you've got, I know Zendesk did a great job of that. Maybe they still do. I know definitely back in the day, they encouraged a lot of their employees to go volunteer a lot. They did company-organized volunteering sessions. That still does not make Zendesk a social enterprise. And just to close it out, I'll say why it's so impactful and why I made the bold statement in the talk to say social entrepreneurship will change the world. I think for me, we see there's a lot of issues in this world that need changing. Social, cultural, environmental, all the things. And I think, unfortunately, the way that we view, it's almost like checks and balances. You know, there's like the judicial, the legislative and the executive branches. We view it now a little bit like that too. Like we have our business, our for-profit business, our nonprofit, and then our government arm. And then we kind of have these like individuals kind of tossed in there. And I think that's really sad that we isolate each of these entities so much. And there isn't enough collaboration and coming together and figuring out how to solve these issues that affect all of us. And I don't think it's fair to leave it up to any one of those organizations, nonprofits, governments, or for-profit companies to solve the world's issues. It's its not going to happen that way. And so what I love about social entrepreneurship is it's really the blending of all the worlds and coming up with really new and innovative and never been done before ways of creating change. And so... That's why I get so excited about it and why I do think it'll change the world and what our country needs more than ever. We hear it a lot, but people across industry, across sector need to come together and collaborate on ways to create change, create the change we wanna see and hold each other accountable. That's another huge part of it. Have checks and balances amongst each other, but still come together. And we all live on this one earth, you know? Another reason why I think it's so impactful is I'm a big teach people how to fish and not give them fish person. Sometimes you have to give a little fish, but for the most part, I think teaching how to fish is a lot more sustainable. And that really is the essence of social entrepreneurship with the recurring revenue I'm talking about with human centered design and making sure that the people are bought in and excited about what you're building. Like, it's just so important to build things that people will want. And sometimes it takes a while to figure out what they want, but we're not doing any good by just tossing out fish and expecting people to learn how to fish. And that's why I think social entrepreneurship can be so powerful because it gives very clear methods on how to teach people to build businesses that have impact. And that's a philosophy that I think we could all learn to be better at. Another reason why I think it's so impactful, the world of social entrepreneurship, is because luckily this next generation really, really demands it. We hear it all the time, for better or for worse, like Gen Z is not letting this stuff go without putting up a fight as they should i mean even something as simple as climate change it's not simple but climate change we all know is happening and destroying our world and it's going to affect the youngest generation and they're not down to just sit by and let it happen and so whether that's working for nonprofits tackling it whether that's working for government and passing policy changes whether that's building a startup that's tackling climate tech like i think this next generation is ready to make these things their problem and they're demanding it. And I think everyone needs to listen. And I'm hopeful that social entrepreneurship is the way forward. And I'm excited to keep talking to people about it. And obviously, you know, part of social entrepreneurship is I'm always questioning my own opinions and beliefs, like a real human centered design thinker. But for now, I do feel like this process and this framework is the best way forward. And I would wish more people knew about it. So yeah, a few resources and then I'll close out. I did give a TEDx talk on this called How Social Entrepreneurship Will Change the World. It was very terrifying to do. I don't think I was qualified to do it, but I did do it. It is out there. And so I hope you give it a listen. I walk through that. The structure of that one is very different. It's the three projects, three businesses that I built and how I went about building them and kind of the, yeah, just the process from A to B so that you can kind of really get into the mind of someone who has studied the framework of social entrepreneurship. So I hope that is helpful. And if it is, shoot me a note. I'd always love to chat with people who watch. And then another TEDx talk that I really love and I recommend often is How We View Charity is Dead Wrong by Dan Pallada. It's a really, really amazing TEDx talk about a lot of what I'm saying, how we view nonprofits and charity completely backwards. The way we judge them, the way we critique them is completely wrong. The, the high level messaging is that, we tell nonprofits not to spend too much on their operating expenses and to just save all their money for programming whereas in reality that's actually really really wrong they need to be reinvesting appropriately but reinvesting in their marketing in their team to get really top talent to get really quality brand image out there and it's not as simple as as minimal as possible of operating expenses and expenses and as maximum as possible for programming it's it's a lot more nuanced than that so Dan talks about that much more eloquently than I can. So I would definitely listen to that. And then another place that has just great like resources, understanding maybe what legal structure you might want to do, understanding just like business models to make sure you're maximizing like impact side and profit side is the Social Entrepreneurship Hub at Stanford. They're amazing and they've got a whole website with resources and great stuff. The website is sehub.stanford.edu. So I highly recommend checking them out. They're awesome. So That is it. That is my social entrepreneurship 101. As you can see, I could talk about this for a long time. So I tried to keep that concise, but still descriptive enough. So you get a sense of what social entrepreneurship is. This is what I believe is my life's work. And I am really excited that you took the time to listen to this. And if you want to chat more, please shoot me a note. And yeah, thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Dear 20 Something. If you enjoyed it, you can give us a follow over at Dear 20 Something on Instagram or subscribe here or anywhere you get podcasts.